I'm Martin Tyler, and you're listening to Harry Simeon. Hey everybody, how's it going? Welcome back along to the Chronicles of Aguna, the Arsenal podcast brought to you by the 90 Min Football family. As ever, I'm your host, Harry Simiu, and on this edition, we're going to be reacting to the disappointment of yesterday's result, the disappointment for Arsenal in the title race, and we'll be discussing where Arsenal go from here. Don't know about you guys, but it's been quite a difficult 24 hours or so, or just under at the time of recording, sort of coming to terms with the fact that any faint hopes we had of still winning the title have, have pretty much completely disappeared now. I know it's not mathematically done, but it is done. Um, if we're being completely honest, I, I felt a few weeks ago that things were heading in this direction. Um, I'd be lying if I said otherwise. You try and stay optimistic. You try and stay positive. You want to back the team. You want to support the team. But you knew deep down, I think, a good few weeks ago that this was heading back to the Etihad, the Premier League title that is, and um, and looking at the run that they've been on and look as though they're going to continue between now and the end of the season. You're going to have to put your hands up and say they deserve it. Arsenal have won just two of their last seven in the Premier League, which has been highlighted by a lot of the pundits and um, a lot of those sort of analysing the aftermath of yesterday. And, you know, it's, a, it's, it's fact, you know, it's not something that's being fabricated. Um, but yeah, I think what this situation has provided us with over the last few weeks is at the very least a bit of clarity. And what I mean by that is I now look at this squad and I look at this group in a way that maybe I didn't look at them maybe six months ago. And I can clearly see now what needs improving, um, what needs work where we still need to add depth. There's there's so many things now for me that over the last few weeks, as I say, have become clear and apparent. I think we had kind of an idea of where we still needed to strengthen, maybe at the halfway point of the season. But I think now, given the way the remainder of the campaigns unfolded, there is that clarity. So if you want to look for a positive, and I know a lot of people are like me, they do want to look for a positive in what is generally a negative, disappointing situation. You want that, don't you? Um so yeah, let's um, let's focus on that. Let's focus on where Arsenal go from here because I think what's really, really important now is that we build on what we've achieved so far this season is that we don't allow it to just go by the wayside. We don't allow that progress to sort of dissipate into nothing. We need Arsenal to, to see what they've... To, to look back on this season, you know, with with a kind of clear head to understand where it went wrong and what we can do to mitigate those issues going into the new season so that hopefully we can continue to be challenging right at the top of the division. And as well as that, you know, we wanted to be back in the big time. We wanted to be back in the Champions League, but that brings challenges as well because we're going to have to be able to cope with competing in that and competing in the Premier League. Now, there's no way that people are going to accept Arsenal and rightly so sort of, I don't want to say throwing, but paying little respect to the Champions League in the way we have paid to the Europa League or in the way that we've treated some of the domestic cups of late. What Arsenal's goal was at the outset and, and what it has been for the last couple of seasons was to get back into the Champions League. And the FA Cup and the Carabao Cup never offered us a route back into those competitions. And that's partly, in my opinion, why they weren't prioritised. It's partly why Mikel Arteta would ring the changes. And it's partly why 
Um, you know, we we didn't have great outcomes in those competitions over the last couple of seasons. But look, you know, here we are back in the Champions League. The financial injection that comes with that um, is obviously going to be helpful in terms of going out and doing the business that we need to do. And on this edition of the podcast, I've told you guys that I've I've got a bit of clarity now around what I believe needs to change and needs to improve. So on this edition of the show, we are going to work our way through some of the areas that I think desperately need addressing. And then we'll try and rank them in terms of priorities as well. You know, which one is right at the top of the list? For me, the things that I've written down all need to be addressed. But what I'm going to do is then once I've explained all the different elements, we'll, we'll rank those, as I say. Uh, let me say a few hellos because there's plenty of you with us in the live chat. Thanks for your kind messages as well um, regarding uh, my Sky Sports News appearance earlier on today. Um, what actually happened today was that uh, I got the call to go down to the Emirates Stadium and, and do that piece with Sky Sports News. And the plan was, well, why I'm there, well, while I'm there, it's a nice sunny day. I'll tell you what I'll do. I will... Um, I will sit down in the sunshine and I'll record the podcast from there. That was what I intended. That was what I planned. Uh, but unfortunately, I couldn't do that. And um, the reason I couldn't do that was because this dark cloud came over the top of me. And um, about four or five minutes into my recording, this massive raindrop just dropped on the front of my laptop. And I thought, nah, can't do this. And I looked up and the heavens were about to open. So I decided to jump on the train and get back home in time uh, to be able to do this instead. But um, yeah, it, it gave me a little bit of extra time to think about it actually. And um, and it gave me a little bit of extra time to kind of really break down the things that I want to discuss. But I said I was going to do hello, so let's do that. Uh, big hello to Mark, to Daniel, to Steve, to Mehdi. Um, Alpha says, hi, Harry, personally feeling disappointed, but proud of what we have achieved. Would be nice to sign off with uh, the last two games being wins. Team looks strained and I don't blame them. Some of you are highlighting the games that you think it went wrong. Mark says, Man City didn't fully deserve it. We gifted them it. If you look at the run that they've been on, Mark, I was on a show today. I think it was, was it 30, 35 from 38? I might be wrong or, or, or something like that. 33 from 36. I can't remember exactly, but that's how many points they've picked up in the Premier League since those financial um, fair play breaches or the alleged breaches uh, were put into the public domain. So they've been, you know, they've been relentless. They really, really have. And and people want to look at where Arsenal faltered and Arsenal have faltered. There's no denying that. There's no packaging it up in any other way. Arsenal have dipped in terms of their form and that has allowed Manchester City to come back from what seemed like a really difficult position and go on and win the league. But you still got to take those opportunities if you're Man City and you've still got to maintain those standards so that if in the event your opponent slips up or goes off the boil in the way that we did, you are there um, to, uh, you know, you are there to make sure that that is, um, that is dealt with and you, and you are there to make sure that you, you take advantage of that. So, yep. We've we've let ourselves down a little bit. You know, I think that's fair. But to say that Man City wouldn't deserve it, given the points tally they're on course to get is, is an absolute madness. Um, what else have we got? Um, Paul James says, if City do the treble, will we view coming second to them more kindly? This has echoes of 1999 
when United overtook us to win the league and then the treble. And no one calls that Arsenal team bottlers. Yeah, I mean, if they go on and win the treble, it's because they're a wonderful, wonderful team. It's not because, you know, they were rubbish all season and they had a, an opportunity because Arsenal dropped a few points towards the end and things just happened to go their way. What Pep Guardiola has at Manchester City, he's built over a course of a long time. He's spent a lot of money and he's been able to get them to this point now where they have a formidable squad, um, but they also have probably the best manager in world football. And we've got a manager who's on an upward trajectory, who I truly do believe is getting better and better, but he's not Pep Guardiola level. Might be someday, you know, even that I'd say is a stretch because of how good Pep Guardiola is. But, you know, this is, this is something that Manchester City have been building for a long, long time. And at the same time, there are Arsenal fans out there saying, well, what they have achieved is invalid because of these charges hanging over their heads. So, you know, I, I'm very much a believer, innocent until proven guilty, and, and that's fine. But, you know, how can you say that on the one hand and say that they've built this juggernaut based off of illegal in footballing terms means but Arsenal not being able to beat them is is then also at the same time a huge bottling, bottle job, whatever you want to call it, capitulation, crumbling. I think what's happened to Arsenal over the course of the season is they've levelled out. And I've been saying throughout the duration of this campaign, those of you that have followed me and listened to me for the duration of the season will know that I've said repeatedly that that was probably going to happen to Arsenal at some point. And the question was, could we establish enough of an advantage for that not to be fatal in the title charge. And unfortunately, we couldn't. We couldn't. Uh, let's say a couple more hellos. Nav is with us. Diego is with us. Uh, keep hold of the questions and we'll we'll do them a little bit later on. Uh, that way I won't miss any. Joey uh, says, hey, Harry, a little sombre uh, this morning coming from stateside. Yep, me too, mate. I feel the same. Um, I, I really, really do. Mark says, uh, Matt, I beg your pardon, says, I'm gutted, but I'm trying not to take away from our great season. I think that's where, um, you know, uh, a lot of people, um, you know, that that is where, where a lot of people are at in terms of this. Um, Rob says, yesterday there was a manager who City might want in 12 to 18 months and it wasn't Mikel. Uh, we got well bossed. I found some of Mikel's decisions yesterday a little bit strange in terms of the in-game management. And I've not traditionally gone big on that. And I've not traditionally gone after him on that. I think there have been some decisions over the course of his tenure that have made me scratch my head. And and some that, you know, I maybe disagree, didn't agree with and disagreed with, but I could understand maybe the thinking behind them. Some of the changes he made yesterday baffled me, um, but I think he looked out there and he saw a group of players that were on their knees, that were physically not at it, mentally had checked out, maybe, is that fair? Um, or, or were really, really damaged and, and finally felt that hammer blow, given that Manchester City had gone and won so convincingly at Everton earlier on in the day. That's what I saw. Um, Roberto De Zerbi is a fantastic coach. I've waxed lyrical about him for a long, long time. I've talked about him on the 90 Min show. Um, even prior to his arrival at Brighton as being someone that, you know, people need to watch out for. So he's a great manager, um, but I don't think Pep Guardiola is going anytime soon. I think that, um, you know, Manchester City are, uh, are, are going to have plenty of time to line up who their replacement is. But hey, um, we'll see how that goes. Uh, is Moss with us? Moss, are you there? I think this is Moss. Is this Moss? 
Uh, he says, devastating, but most of us did not give Arsenal a chance to finish in the top two. And now we're upset. Uh, but I had us coming second at the start, so well done. But just disappointing with losing the games at the end. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. And also, Moss, I gave Tom the scarf. He's got it. So, uh, yeah. Um, anyway, right. Let's um, let's dive into it then. What do Arsenal need to do? What needs to change? So I've highlighted a number of positions that I think Arsenal need to improve in. Now, that can be done in a number of ways. That can be done by going out and signing players. That can be done by you know, improving the ones that you've got, which is where coaching comes into it. And that's obviously quite important, uh, given that you can't always just throw money at an issue, especially not when you're Arsenal Football Club. Um, and uh, yeah, I wanted to um, I wanted to start by uh, sort of um, by. Um, yeah, sort of going from back to front. Should we did back to front. I think that's probably. Uh, the best way to do it. Let's start from the back then. So a couple of positions at the back for me still need improving. And the reason I've highlighted the defence quite a bit uh, on this uh, episode, and I will highlight them quite a bit, is because I feel like towards the back end of the season, that's really what let us down. Now we can talk about what we need up top. And I do think we do need things further on uh, in the team. But I think for me, the most disappointing part um about the second part of the campaign and, and particularly the last few months was how weak we became defensively. Now, lots of you will say that that was because William Saliba was out. And I agree with that. And obviously that's a big factor and has played a big part in, in where we find ourselves today. But I also think we got a little bit sloppy defensively just prior to his injury as well, whether it be from set pieces, you know, we defended them so well in the first part of the season weren't able to replicate that moving forward. The individual errors were starting to become far more frequent, i.e. players giving the ball away when being pressed, um, you know, just bad decision-making. There was a lot more of those things starting to creep into our game. And, and, and even just before William Saliba got injured, obviously, as I said, it's a big thing. Um, and, I, and I don't want to discount how important that was and how much of a negative impact that had. But for me... Uh, there really were, um, you know, uh, uh, there really were signs even prior that our defensive pride had, had just left us a little bit, you know, like we weren't doing the basics right anymore. And, um, and, and I felt like we were starting to get exposed on the left-hand side because of Zinchenko's nature to drift in field, obviously an instruction as well from his manager. So I don't want to keep hammering him too much for that but I always felt like we ended up in a situation where Gabriel had to shift across where Ben White had to tuck in on the other side Saliba would shift across as well and sometimes we ended up with a back three if we lost the ball and and, and when you ask a back three to cover the entire width of the pitch all of the time or, or quite often it can be problematic can't it it can be big spaces big holes and and you just don't want that so Defence for me is is something that we really need to work on. I'm going to start off with the left-back position because although we signed Zinchenko in the summer and we brought him in for what seemed like a really good deal at the time and, and, and probably still is on the balance of what we paid and how much he's impacted the team, I think what we saw from him coming in was first and foremost some real leadership from a player that's been there and done it, just 26 years old, but sometimes he... He seems like one of the elder statesmen in the team. Well, I mean, he is one of the elder statesmen in this team, which tells you, um, you know, how inexperienced some of the rest of it is. But he came in and he brought those leadership qualities. He brought a different uh, 
skill set to the role, keep talking about him going into midfield. And with him going into midfield, it gave us the ability to control football matches, often from start to finish. And that, for me, was something that Mikel Arteta teams prior had struggled to do. We looked good in flashes right at the beginning of his tenure. We looked good on the counter-attack, but not so much when we were forced to break someone down. We lacked creativity. But Zinchenko's arrival added another weapon to our armory and put us in a place where we could really control games. Now, you take the good with the bad, right? So in terms of the good, that control was there, the dominance was there, all of the things that he brings to the table were clear for everybody to see. Defensively, though, at times, we were left a little bit weaker because he isn't a one-on-one defender. He isn't someone with necessarily those defensive instincts. His strengths come in his ability to, to get on the ball and dictate things and, and, and sort of set tempos and set rhythms. My problem is, is that we brought him in because A, there was an opportunity to do that. There was an opportunity to add a really good pro and a really good player to the squad for a reasonable amount of money. And we'd had issues with Kieran Tierney over the past few seasons with regards to his fitness. We always say it, the best ability is availability, right? And, and Kieran Tierney, for all his strengths, hasn't been available anywhere near enough for Arsenal since arriving at the football club. So we bring in Zinchenko. Now, Zinchenko, who is so important to the way we play now and is such a key part in the way we build up, um, has also had injury issues of his own. Now, he's only started 72% of Arsenal's games so far this season, which means he's missed 28% of Arsenal's Premier League games. Now, that is a problem. Because if you've got someone who is so pivotal to the way you play and he's only available three quarters of the time, there's going to be a significant period, you know, or less than three quarters of the time. There's going to be a significant period where he's going to be out and you're not going to be able to cope with that. And the reason we can't cope with that is because we've got two fullbacks that are of a totally different profile. One is a more traditional fullback. And when you ask him to go in field, I think looks lost. And the other one is a midfielder that's tucking in at left back. The point I'm trying to make here is that clearly over the course of the summer and clearly throughout the season, there was a lot of emphasis on how Zinchenko or whoever played in the Zinchenko role could get into midfield, could support their defensively in a more sort of narrower position, but could also help us progress the ball through the lines. So if you do lots of work on that and you build up towards that, then all of a sudden when that's taken away and you don't have a player that you can bring in and do the same job, then you have to change your style. Do you want to change your style? Like, you know, it's 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 something that, you know, you, you don't really want to do in, in ideal circumstances. You probably accept and acknowledge that you'll have to um, at some point, but it isn't something that you want to do as frequently as we've had to do it this season. And I just sort of bring up the games that Zinchenko was out. He had a couple of uh, games back in August that he missed. Fulham at home, Villa at home with a knee issue. Uh, missed the game away at Brentford with a calf injury. Came back for the game at home to Tottenham. Played 73 minutes then and then missed the next four. Uh, Liverpool at home, Leeds away, Southampton away, Forest at home with a calf problem. Um, and then, of course... Uh, an injury away at West Ham in the 2-2. Um, he wasn't available that day. 
And then, of course, um, he picked up uh, some kind of problem over the course of last week, which meant he was out for the Brighton game as well. So Alexander Zinchenko is is key to the way we play. But if he's not going to be fit and this frequency of injuries is going to continue, we need to have somebody that can come in and can play in a very similar way to him in a way that doesn't disrupt the mechanics of our system. And um, and, and that's uh, and that's something that we got to look at. If Mikel Arteta wants to play this way moving forward, is Kieran Tierney the right person? Or do you sell Kieran Tierney in the summer and bring in someone who can play that Zinchenko role in a more effective way? Therefore, when Zinchenko's unavailable, you've got someone who slots in and who does the same job. And that's why when I talk about Kieran Tierney potentially being sold, then I get a lot of stick for that. It's not because I don't think he's a good fullback. It's because I think tactically we've evolved and we've moved on from what Kieran Tierney is. And that was the same with Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang at point when his form really started to dip prior to all the issues. And that conversation was ongoing. My thoughts on that were that this guy hasn't become a bad striker overnight. We've evolved and, and we play in a very different way. And, and now he's not the right fit. So for me, the left back situation is one that needs addressing. You either learn to play another way and make sure that you can vary it find a way of creating that midfield overload in a different way. Maybe that involves Ben White going inside and you do it um, a little bit more from the right than the left in, in Zinchenko's absence. I don't know. Um, you know, maybe that's one way of looking at it or, or trying to to solve that issue. Or you move Kieran Tierney on and you go and bring in someone who can play the left-back role in a similar vein to the way that Zinchenko plays it, if you feel that is the way you want to go. Because tactically, Kieran Tierney is not as versatile as some fullbacks out there. You know, and again, that's not a criticism of him and his ability. For example, we talked last week, didn't we, about the links with Joao Cancelo. Now, he's a player that I think could absolutely 100% do what Zinchenko does. But can also play more like a traditional fullback as well. I'm not saying we're going to get Cancelo or that we should go and spend a shit ton of money on him. What I am saying is that we need players that fit into the system and, and fit into the holes that we have in our squad and in our team. We often talked about it, square pegs in round holes. That was one of the most common conversations you'd hear when we were talking about Emery and when we were talking about Arteta at the beginning of his tenure. Putting Kieran Tierney in the Zinchenko role and asking him to do that is exactly that, putting a square peg in a round hole. Moving across to centre-back, we need to improve in that area. That is, to me, as clear as day. Jakob Kivio's come in. He's looked okay. He's looked better than Rob Holding. You know, if we bought him for 20-odd million pounds from Spezia, whatever it was, and we didn't get somebody better than Rob Holding, I would have questioned the logic behind that deal. Rob Holding, I think, had his kind of last hurrah in an Arsenal shirt this season. You know, he tried to come in and cover it wasn't for a lack of trying, but he just wasn't good enough. And unfortunately, he, a bit like Kieran Tierney does, really impacted on the way that we wanted to play. And that made us far, far less effective. So centre-back cover, I think, is a clear one. I think we definitely, definitely um, need to do business there. Um, you know, Ben White can play there, we know, but we don't have another right-back option while Tommy Asu is out. So we probably need to bring someone else in who can play at right centre-back, then we've got at least two options at right-back, both of whom can tuck in at centre-back as well. 
Yesterday made me ask questions of Ben White as well as a right back. Like, I think he's had a fantastic season. So maybe this is a bit harsh. Maybe I shouldn't be even thinking these things about Ben White. But he was massively exposed yesterday by Karen Mitoma. I guess for now, I'm just going to put it down to an off day. Um, but, you know, it started to make me wonder if up against the very best wingers, you can always get away with playing these fullbacks who are very much centre-backs in terms of their movement. Are they mobile enough? Are they quick enough? Are they agile enough? I don't know. Um, that's something to think about as well. Um, we'll talk about the midfield still. We'll talk about the striker position. We're going to also talk about Bukayo Saka and the support that I believe he needs uh, in order to keep um, growing and improving. We'll also discuss uh, Martin Keown's comments this morning on TalkSport about um, Martin Tyler's commentary. And it's an, I've, I've tweeted something out sort of in Martin Tyler's defence and I've been absolutely battered um, in, some of the, um, in some of the responses to it. But I want to put my side to this across because some people have said, you know, in response to my tweet, well, you know, you, you've spoken to Martin Tyler before, so you've got an affiliation with him. And he's not my mate. Like, you know, we're not best buds, like, and, and we don't chat on a regular basis. Like, it's, it's not one of those where I feel I need to defend someone. But I think Martin Keown's comments were unfair. If you want to talk about bias, I think there is a case to be made. And I think the finger can be pointed at a number of individuals Martin Tyler, though, I'm not sure was the one to go after. I think there are others that were involved in that broadcast that he could have gone after. And he probably didn't from fear of retaliation. Whereas Martin Tyler, from what I know, is probably going to be way too classy and um, and, and and not come out sort of swinging uh, back at Martin Keown. So we'll see. Um, we'll see. But yeah, let's take a very, very short pause uh, just to bring you a quick message from our sponsors and then we'll get into all of those topics uh, for the remainder of the show. We'll also take some of your questions towards the end as well. So hold fire on those. Remember, the Chronicles of Aguna podcast is brought to you by the good people over at NordVPN, the virtual private network service, which opens up a load of possibilities for you when surfing the web. But perhaps more importantly than that, it gives you an added layer of security when you're surfing the World Wide Web. NordVPN costs you the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's all. But the doors it opens are unbelievable. So you can change your location virtually, of course. You don't have to get on a plane and fly somewhere. If you want your browser to think you're in the United States of America, you can do that with the click of a couple of buttons. And what that does is allow you to access subscriptions, movies, TV series, streams, and online content that ordinarily wouldn't be allowed outside of that territory. For example, if you log into Netflix uh, with a US-based VPN, you'll be able to access their inventory of programming, which is different to ours, of course. Um, and that might be something you're interested in. If you want to book flights somewhere, why not log into that destination virtually and check what the price looks like from the other end? Often, you can save yourself quite a bit of money. There are lots and lots of things that you can do with NordVPN. It's fast. It's reliable. It's one of the best services If well, in this class, in this space. It's the best service out there. There's no doubt about it. I use it regularly. And if you've got any questions about it, feel free to hit me up and, uh, and I can uh, guide you through it. Um, but the opportunity you have here, based on your fact that you're a Chronicles of Aguna listener, is to sign up 
get a huge discount on your plan as well as four additional months for free at the end of it. Remember, it's the price of a cup of coffee per month. And to sign up, you need to go to nordvpn.com forward slash Chronicles AFC. The link is in the description below. Um, try to take advantage of that offer very soon if it is something you're interested in because it's this campaign is due to run for another couple of weeks. So, um, yeah, get a move on. You'll save yourself a fair bit. And I promise you, once you... Today's episode is sponsored by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. NerdWallet's trusted financial journalists use fact-based reporting for some much-needed clarity in the finance world, helping you make smarter decisions with your money. The nerds have helped me get smarter about things like planning for my tax bills so I don't dread April every year, producing a balanced budget, not just for football, and saving on travel because spending less on airfares means more money for an extra night and maybe a fancy dinner too. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Operate with a, a VPN service, you're not going back. You really aren't. Thank you very, very much um, for your uh, viewership, listenership. Thank you for tuning in. Thank you to NordVPN as well uh, for their support of the podcast because without them, I wouldn't be able to dedicate as much time uh, to the Chronicles of Aguna as I currently do. So I'm really, really grateful uh, for their support of the program as well. Right. We've touched on left back. We've touched on center back. Uh, this is the Where Do Arsenal Go From Here show uh, on the Chronicles of Aguna podcast. I think it's time now to talk about the center of midfield. Now, we've been heavily linked with a number of players. Uh, Declan Rice, Moises Caicedo, uh, Martin Zubimendi is someone that's been uh, talked about quite a bit. Interested to see, um, uh, you know, whether that materializes into anything as well. Um, but I think midfield has been a problem area for us when we've had to be without any of our three starters. And, and three starters, I mean, Partey, Jorginho, Jorginho, what am I talking about? Partey, Odegaard and Xhaka. Um, Jorginho has come in of late, did very well against Chelsea at home, did well away at Villa. Um, there was a couple of other games that come to mind. Um, you know, played well up at Newcastle. But I think a lot of us knew that Jorginho had limitations, has limitations. And a lot of us worried about how suitable he'd be to this system. To be fair to him, I think the majority of the work he's done has been positive, has been good. But I think yesterday was a prime example and I guess a timely reminder of the fact that he isn't the solution going forward and that there are parts of his game that are lacking that are almost essential to the way that we want to play and that we want to build up. We're unfortunate that Thomas Partey's form has gone off the side of a cliff at the end of the season. I don't really have an explanation for that. I couldn't tell you why that's happened or why that's occurred. But it's clear that in midfield throughout the season, when we've had to be without certain players, um, we've really, really struggled. And um you know, we need a midfield that we can rotate, but that is capable of playing in the same way. So you need a like for like for Thomas Partey, someone that could have come in when Thomas Partey was absent, who would bring all of the same things to the team. And, you know, it's something that you can do for two, three games here and there with Jorginho, but it's not something that is sustainable. And the problem is with someone like Partey and his injury record uh, of recent years, you do need whoever the replacement is to be able to come in perform and for that to be sustainable over a period of time to stand a chance of maintaining your standards. Equally, 
you know, in the way that we did with Jorginho now, and it worked to a degree, you need to be able to freshen things up when it's not working. But again, I go back to the point I made about the left-back situation. If you're bringing in a totally different profile of midfielder, that disrupts your plan. Now, people will say, well, you should have a plan B. Right, but just because one player is missing, it doesn't mean you want to move to plan B. You should be able to plan uh, to go to plan B under certain circumstances, but that shouldn't be on the premise of someone being unavailable. You should have nowadays to compete at the top level a deep enough squad to be able uh, to um, to still execute plan A with one or two key players missing. And um, I think that's really important. So midfield, I think, is an obvious one, uh, an obvious area in which we need to improve. And there are a lot of names being banded about with regards to that. Um Moving on, I want to talk about the striker position. I've really, really enjoyed um, watching Gabriel Jesus in an Arsenal shirt. Was bitterly disappointed when he picked up that injury. It's been great to see him come back and perform for the most part at something like his brilliant best. Um, Is he a killer in front of goal? No. Um, But what I would argue is that Gabriel Jesus' wider contributions, i.e., the way he links up play, the hard work, the spaces he runs into, the gaps he creates and leaves for other people. What they have done is they have helped in terms of getting more out of the Sackers, the Martinellis and the Odegaards in and around him. Now, he's only started 61% of our games this season. Obviously, he missed a long period out after the World Cup. Uh, so that plays a big part in that. Other than that, when he's been available, he's played 10 goals in the Premier League in 24 appearances. Um, not quite one in two. Assist six, which is which is pretty good for a centre forward who's, you know, what's the word like, who traditionally is tasked with scoring the goals. He's been able to contribute to the team in other ways as well. 19% goal participation in terms of goals or assists uh, in the Premier League for us this season. So one in every five goals has had a Gabriel Jesus hand in it somewhere along the line. But again, remember that would have been affected by the fact that he's only played 61% of the games. So you've got to take that into consideration as well. Is he a killer, though, in front of the goal? Like, is he one of those players that you look at and you go, he needs one chance today, and if he gets it, he's going to take it, and that'll be that? No, he's not. And he never has been. And we said this, didn't we, when we signed him? We said that he brings lots to the table, and I'm really excited by what what we're going to see. Not even I thought he was going to be as impactful in terms of what he did for the team. And, and how he brought the best out of those around him. Um, so I've been pleasantly surprised in that sense. But we need someone who's a killer in front of goal, in my opinion. And we also need someone with a bit of a physical presence. And we need someone who offers us a different option. Now, when it comes to the centre-forward role, I think you do need a plan B, definitely. It's not always about like-for-like like in that situation. I think you want to have a like-for-like like option up your sleeve so that if a player is out and unavailable, again, You're not forced into moving to plan B before you want to actually do that. But I think there will be games. And as Arsenal get better and better and and their reputation grows, there will be more and more of those games where a team sit deep, look to frustrate, and you need to have something different. You need to be able to put the ball in the box early, in my opinion. And having a big, powerful striker would probably allow us to do that. It would give us the opportunity to go that little bit more direct. I know we try and do it with Gabriel Jesus and he works incredibly hard and Often I've seen him knock centre-halves around, which is brilliant. But 
You need to have a, a different type of hold up ability um, in terms of someone that's that bit bigger that can hold it for that bit longer. Uh, that is a direct threat aerially on goal as well. So, yeah, I want to I want to see us bring in another centre forward. I don't think Eddie Nketiah is what I'm describing. Don't know about following Balogun either, to be honest with you. He's had a magnificent season in France, but is he that different to Jesus in terms of his build? No. Maybe in terms of his profile, i.e. likes to play off the shoulder a bit more. There are big differences, but I really believe he's someone we're probably going to cash in on this summer and someone who, from the, the sort of money of the sale, will need to, you know, will need to look elsewhere and um, and try and bolster our options there. Um, look, we looked at Vlavic, didn't we? We know that there was an interest there. He's a very different type of striker to Gabriel Jesus, which suggests to me that Mikel Arteta was looking at that profile of player. It wasn't always a Jesus type. I think a bit like the Zinchenko situation, the opportunity to sign a really good player and someone who could take us up to the next level presented itself. The money was uh, the kind of money that Arsenal were willing and able to pay. And so they took that decision and and, and fine. Um, but yeah, we need a, a killer striker slash a different profile of striker in, um, in my opinion. And I guess the final position that I think we really need to address is on that right-hand side. You know, Bukayo Saka has been great for the most part of the season, but it's undeniable that his form has tailed off. You know, it, it really has. And how do you fix that or change that? The problem is at Arsenal right now, you've got, uh, you know, Trossard, who, who is better off from the left. I know he can play from the right, but he is better from the left. Martinelli's better from the left. Reese Nelson is better from the left. And we don't really have that standout competition for Bukayo Saka. Clearly, Arteta doesn't feel anyone in the squad can give us what he gives us on that right flank. And so he needs to go and find someone that can, because we cannot play this kid every single week in every single competition. Um, you know, put all our hopes on him, demand so much from him and expect him to be able to maintain and sustain an incredibly high level throughout the duration of the campaign. So for me, that's another issue as well. So my kind of five issues in the squad still for me, and look, we might not be able to address every single one of these this summer. But if we can address three or four, I think it significantly improves us again. So we need to strengthen in the centre of midfield. We need to sort out the left-back situation, in my opinion. We need to understand that Zinchenko's availability could be an issue going forward. That's the same with Kieran Tierney, really, as well, who, fortunately, this season has steered clear of injuries for the most part. Um, but we need cover to Zinchenko because he's clearly the number one uh, that is a little bit more similar in terms of the profile and the way they want to play. We need centre-back cover. We need that killer striker slash different profile of centre-forward. And we need a Bukayo Saka uh, sort of a stuntman, if you like, who can come in. Nobody can tell the difference uh, from uh, from week to week. But yeah, um, those are my thoughts on on where the team needs to improve. Going to take another very, very short pause. We're going to talk Martin Tyler, Martin Keown's comments in which he said that the commentator was biased and shouldn't be on Arsenal games. And uh, we'll also then take some of your questions too towards the back end of the show. See you in a minute. Okay, uh, let's do this Martin Tyler thing then. So Martin Keown has basically come out. And uh, for those of you that have been living under a rock today or haven't had a chance to see the news, Martin Keown on TalkSport today said that Martin Tyler 
was well, basically suggested that Martin Tyler's biased against Arsenal and that you can hear it in his voice that it pains him to see Arsenal potentially win a game or whatever. And, and I, I've taken a little bit of an issue with this comment, right? So let me explain why. Martin Tyler is one of the best commentators we've ever had in English football. Is he still the best commentator in English football at, I think, close to 80 years of age? If I'm being honest, probably not. Probably not. Okay, but that's my opinion. Other people will have a different opinion on that. Some will agree, some will disagree, and that's absolutely fine. But given he's been in the game for so long, given how many iconic moments he's produced and or, or voiced, I should say, and, and sort of been a rig, real big part of. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I think of sort of momentous goals, I always think of the commentary that went alongside them. And Martin Tyler is, is the voice behind a lot of those moments, particularly in the Premier League era and, and in the Sky Sports era. I've had the pleasure of sitting down with Martin Tyler and speaking to him about the game. Uh, speaking to him about the job, because obviously, as you guys know, it's a job that I do a little bit of and I'm I'm trying to get better at and I'm trying to progress in. And one of the things I found amazing about Martin Tyler was how open he was and how willing he was to say, yeah, you know what? We didn't say this, but to basically be of the view that you are a nobody, but you're enthusiastic and you want to get there. So I can spend a little bit of my spare time listening to your demos and providing you with detailed feedback. He didn't just take my demos and go, yeah, very good, mate, um, but do a little bit more of this or a little bit less of that. He gave me a comprehensive breakdown of, um, of, of what I can do better, what I did well, what maybe doesn't work as well, a couple of things to watch out for that maybe you don't hear yourself when you're listening back to yourself. And I really, really appreciate that, which means I'm coming at this from a place of respect for Martin Tyler, the commentator, but also Martin Tyler, the man. And I think that's really, really important here because what Martin Keown basically does is say, I don't want to question his professionalism. He's a great professional. But then he goes on to do exactly that by saying that he's biased. I've done commentary on Arsenal games where the opposition has scored against us and you can hear in my voice a rise in the tone and a lift when a goal goes in against us because I'm in job mode. And, you know, I that, that that's where I am. I'm in job mode. You know, I'm in, I'm commentating on the game and I'm mindful that the listener might not be an Arsenal fan and might be of the opposition's sort of parish. And so I want to make sure that I'm doing the moment justice. So my tone will be dictated by the moment. Now, that's not always easy to do. And it's something I found really hard at the beginning when doing Arsenal games. And I have to be honest, right at the start, I wanted to steer clear of Arsenal games from fear of that being an issue. But I've learned to get into that mode and into that zone and been able to uh, sort of, um, you know, to, to do it in the way that you should do it. Martin Tyler is, generally speaking, less enthusiastic about big moments in terms of his tone of voice in his, you know, age now, at his age now, than he was 20, 25 years ago. That's a, a, 
a development in his commentary. Some will say it's a positive one. Some will say it's a negative. You're entitled to your opinion on that either way. But the point I'm trying to make here is that generally, I don't think Martin Tyler goes as big on certain moments as he would have done in the past. And maybe that is because he's got to a certain point in his career, whatever. I don't really think there's a bias there. I don't. Um, I, I spoke to him at length about football. He's got a huge admiration for Arsenal Football Club. And I'm not just saying this because... You know, I like the guy. Like, I wouldn't bother. I would just keep quiet about this. But I think it's really, really unfair for Martin Keown, who I absolutely loved as a player, to do this. Now, is there a bias against Arsenal in some of the um, in some of the coverage that we get on some of our broadcasters here in the UK? I think there is. Is there a need to call that out? I think there is. Had Martin Keown sat there and gone after Gary Neville? or Jamie Carragher, or some of the others that regularly provide punditry on Sky Sports and can be overly negative and overly critical of Arsenal, in my opinion. I mean, you only have to look at Gary Neville's social media, right? It's like Gary Neville is literally fighting this ongoing war with Arsenal fans. Like, he wants to be able to say, I told you so, when they didn't win the league because he never backed us to do it in the first place. When you're engaging in those kind of exchanges every single week, then there is an argument that there is a bias there. So my issue with Martin Keown is not that he called out a bias towards Arsenal with regards to a broadcaster. It's that he went after, in my opinion, the wrong man in this. He's gone after the wrong guy. Go after the Gary Nevilles. Um, go after the Jamie Carragher's. But the reason Martin Keown won't go after those guys is because those guys will come back at him. They'll come back swinging. They've got massive social media platforms and they will fly comments back at him and it will become a bit of tit for tat and, and all of that. And Martin Keown doesn't want to engage in that. So he's gone after the guy that isn't going to say anything. That probably feels like he's passed all of this shit, you know, and, and he doesn't need it. I think that commentators generally do a wonderful job of of remaining down the middle. I think that you will, you know, I think that as you become a commentator, I think there, there becomes a part of you that either softens in your stance towards your team in terms of your love, maybe. And I, I'm not saying that's happened to me because it hasn't. This season's done the opposite to me. But what it's given me is this ability, which I've had to learn over time to be able to, not turn it off in game, but to be able to just control it. And I think Martin Tyler is, is has been and is one of the best in the business at that in terms of providing an equal level of excitement or disappointment or frustration, whatever, regardless of who's playing. You know, you're you're there to provide the soundtrack to the moment. Everybody would have grown up following certain teams and everybody would have grown up preferring certain teams to other teams. You know, that's that's how it goes. I think your job as a commentator is to make sure that that doesn't really come through in your commentary. And I think Tyler does that fine. So as I say, no issue with Martin Keown calling out the broadcaster for the bias and, and sort of making the point about the general coverage, which I agree with. But to go after the commentator, I think, is an easy thing to do because A, you know he's not going to swing back. And B, just just misplaced in my opinion. But that's that's just me. People have said to me on Twitter, they've gone, oh, because Martin Tyler gave you some feedback once, you feel like you have to defend him. No, I don't. I, I, 
I don't have to say anything about this. It's, it's not really relevant to the podcast that we are here. Now, I know that, um, you know, I've just spent a few minutes talking about it. So that probably sounds like a bit of a hypocritical thing and stupid thing to say. But the point I'm trying to make here is that I wanted to put my full point across on this because you, you put something out on Twitter and obviously the trolls come after you and all of that. And you, you get all that nonsense, don't you? Um, but yeah, that's that's how I, I feel about it. And um, and I just think that Martin Kieran would have been better off highlighting some of the others who are much more biased, clearly, uh, than uh, than the commentator himself who's just describing the events. But anyway, um, I digress. Let's uh, let's get back on track. Let's talk Arsenal. Let's get some of your thoughts, some of your questions from the live chat. I'd love to hear from as many of you as possible um, between now and the end of the show. We'll probably do five, six minutes uh, more on the live stream while you're getting your questions in the chat box. Don't forget to leave a like on the video. Don't forget to subscribe uh, to the channel if you haven't done so already. Um, and uh, if you're listening to us on audio, well, then please do leave us a review. One of the things as well that I wanted to mention to you guys that I found really, really interesting is like when I first started this podcast and, and sort of was get once I got into that regular flow of doing it, you know, pretty much daily or, or as close to um, as, as sort of viably possible or as has made sense. I always found that at the beginning, and I hated this, and I almost felt guilty about it. I always found that when something went wrong with Arsenal, we got, you know, a real sort of jump in numbers that people were almost surfing the web looking for reasons to be outraged about Arsenal and, and looking for, for someone that was going to vent and, and sort of convey the opinions that maybe they have. And the numbers used to spike, right? Whether that be on the video, on the, the audio downloads, what I've noticed this season is that actually the numbers dip a little bit now when Arsenal lose because people are so hurt by it that they don't really want to listen to or, or they won't consume as much Arsenal-related content as they will when we win. And that in itself, I think, is a, a big indicator as to how the mood at the football club has changed. And how you've got that greater level of investment now from the fans and how you can tell that they're really, really feeling the roller coaster of emotions that we've been on this season. Because I'm finding it increasingly difficult to do these after defeats. And actually, when I was really sort of disconnected and, and, and feeling discontent about what was going on, I actually looked forward to jumping on and venting because it not only went out as a podcast but it also gave me an opportunity to kind of talk it out and and to sort of vent and, and clear my head and, and get everything out there into the ether that I wanted to put out there and and then I could move on from it and draw a line under it now I find it really really difficult when we lose and and as I say I think you can see that in the numbers sometimes um, I think that people just want to step away and that to me is a big indicator of the fact that that emotional connection and investment for a lot of people, um, where it maybe dwindled for a little while, um, you know, is uh, is uh, is back. Uh, Cesar says, uh, Harry, um, you're the most biased commentator in the game. You can't tell me your commentary after the Reese Nelson goal was biased. Oh, come on. Um, you know, that was a I was working for BBC London. So there is a, a London club bias there. Uh, number one and um, and number two that was a special moment any commentator who didn't go absolutely wild in that moment 
Um, you know, what are you doing? Um, <laughs> do you want to hear it one more time? Will that cheer everybody up? Because I've actually got it loaded up onto the system. Give me a thumbs up in the chat if you want to hear uh, the Reese Nelson reaction again um, before we sign. Maybe we can sign off the show with it, but only if you guys uh, want to hear it again. Um, but yeah, uh, say actually don't put the thumbs up because that might get lost in there. Just put yes to Nelson. And um, and if if we get enough people asking for it, we'll sign off the show with that instead of um, the outro. Maybe that'll make everybody feel a little bit better. Mirror remembering the good times. Uh, Pete Renner says, uh, would you take James Madison as an alternative to Xhaka? And would he fit Arteta's system? I'm not sure that he would fit that position. I see him as more like a Martin Odegaard. And the problem is that you need a Xhaka to balance having an Odegaard in that midfield. I really do believe that. So, um, yeah, I, not re I, I like James Madison, but not as an alternative to Xhaka, if, if that makes sense. Uh, what else have we got? I'll take a couple more and then we'll sign off um, with, uh, with remembering the good times, I guess. Uh, what have we got? Um, I just found one and, and my thing is just scrolled down and I've lost it now. Uh, what have we got? 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 Have we got? Um, <laughs> Paul Nell says, I'll take in Ilkay Gundogan as a Granite Xhaka replacement. Yeah, so would I. Could be going on a free transfer this summer. Can Mikel Arteta convince him? Um, I, I, Moss, I'm sorry, I don't get this question, mate. Um, I know I, my day cleats falls off. What does that mean? You still don't stop playing until the ref stops the match. New Gen and Kivior, they go right to put back on cleat. Wow, stand up, head up. Are you talking about the Kivior situation in that he should have got on with it? I said that on, on my post-match player ratings yesterday. I got a bit of feedback that that was really harsh, but I, I, I felt that as well, that you... You have to be able to just get on with it and, and and deal with whatever incident took place afterwards. But it depends how painful it is, I guess. Uh, Ian says, uh, what would the judgment be on Mikel Arteta if we still don't manage to win any trophies? Difficult question. Depends depends what comes with that, mate. Like, I know football is about trophies, but nowadays, like, and I know this is mad and, and I don't want football to be like this, but the reality is that being in the top four is, is more important than winning the Carabao Cup for argument's sake because it gives you a route into the Champions League and provides you the financial benefits that come with that. Um, so if he finished second again, for example, like to finish runners-up back-to-back against in back-to-back -back seasons against a side like Manchester City would be great. I mean, nobody was hammering Jurgen Klopp when his team were doing that because people recognised how far they'd come, the levels of consistency they were showing generally and how good Manchester City were. So it depends on the wider context of the question. You can have a, a, a satisfactory season, I think, without winning trophies um, necessarily. Uh, what else have we got? Um, Pete says, oh, Moss, when he said cleats meant boots. <laughs> um Pete says, do you think the injury to Tomiyasu has played a part in the in the loss of the league? Because White, having no cover, had to play every minute. Yeah, and also I think White could have gone and covered um, Saliba and done a much better job of it than um, than either Holding or Kivior could have done, you know, in, in the short period of time. So, yeah, I think um, 
I think certainly the Tommy Asu injury has hurt us. But again, he's another one who just with injuries is just so unreliable. And, um, you know, we've got, we got to think about that going into the summer. We really, really do. Um, right, I'm going to sign off. I'll leave you with uh, the reaction uh, to the Reese Nelson goal. That might put a smile on your face. On the day I've been talking about commentators not being biased, maybe this goes against my point. But you know what? What the heck? Enjoy it. And I'll see you all uh, next time with another edition of the Chronicles of Akuma. The afternoon of live football that we've had. Arsenal have maintained their five-point lead at the top of the Premier League table. Just. Odegaard's ball in. Headed away. Nelson on the edge of the box. Takes it on the chest. Try. Bruce Nelson's done it! Bruce Send the place into Raptors! Arsenal are 3-2 up! Harry Simeu um, breaking our equipment briefly, but we got him back and uh, he was there able to tell us that Arsenal with uh, coming from 2-0 down and Reese Nelson with a sumptuous volley getting the win against Bournemouth. Uh, well, there is a win at the Emirates. Harry Simeu. It's Arsenal 3, Bournemouth 2. Reese Nelson, the substitute, is the hero. What a difference he's made since coming on. It was a corner from the right-hand side, headed clear. Reese Nelson picked it up on the edge of the box. He took it under control, and with his left foot, he powered a finish home into the far corner. The stadium erupted. The staff were on the pitch. The cameramen were on the pitch as well. That should be the last kick of the game. Surely now, Arsenal have won it. There it is, the full-time whistle. Arsenal have done it, that's what champions do, they've come from behind and won this game by three goals to two, incredible scenes!